I love board games. A lot. I love being able to sit down with friends or with family and play a really fun game and compete and win or work together and win. Um, but there's a game that I uh, recently learned that uh, last service I uh, realized I probably shouldn't. Actually, no. It might be too soon to say the name, but it's a game called Pandemic. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have heard of that board game. It, I'm sorry if it's too soon to say that, but... Uh, it is is actually a pretty fun game, and the goal of it is for you. Everyone who plays on the team on in, plays the game is on one team, and they're working together to cure these diseases. And uh, a very crucial part of this game is being able to work well together with your teammates to come up with this cure. And when I played it. Uh, relatively recently with my family in Victoria, I actually had a really hard time because I, Toby, have the best ideas. I know exactly what we're supposed to do to cure everything, and if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. And, and, and I had a really hard time. I had a really hard time uh, when I would have an idea and someone would say, no, I don't think that's the best idea, Toby. And I got easily frustrated when what I wanted to do or what I thought was best was not what everyone else thought. And uh, afterwards, I reflected on it because there was some tension. Me and Victoria talked about it. And uh, I, I realized when I look inward at myself, I can, I can easily get really attached to the way I want to do things, the way I think something is best, even to where it can be hard for me to accept or uh, enjoy another perspective. Have you ever been frustrated by your own ideas or way of life being challenged in any way. Whether that's a boss asking you to do something or a coworker asking you to do something a certain way that you thought you had a more efficient way of doing it or, or uh, just and so you thought it was dumb. That, that's pretty frustrating. Or, or maybe uh, you had a plan, you, you planned out your day for your, your family or for a group of friends and no one else actually wanted to do those things. That can be really frustrating. Or for the, for the youth here in the room, one of the most frustrating things can be when your parents says no, because they don't understand, and they are restrictive and oppressive. That, that's, that is, uh, <laughs> that is, that's real, and, and, and they're real feelings. And, and, that, and that's even before we talk about faith and, and the Bible and our God and, and this kingdom that he's presented to us that does challenge our, our way of seeing what it means to be human and what it means to walk in this life. It, it, can be, it can be challenging and frustrating. And that's not, to, I don't say all of this to say that being frustrated or angry is wrong, because there are even righteous things that, that we, I think we should be angry about. But I just want to, I want to point out this tendency that I think all of us have, which is when our ideas, our way of life, how we think about the world, even if we just feel like it's being challenged, it can be deeply frustrating, it, even angering. And today we're going to be moving into chapter 2 of Matthew, and we're going to see Matthew tell us what happened when he revealed this, as we talked about last week, the salvation, the king, the God of the universe is here and he's with us, he's for us. He revealed this to some eastern magi, who we're going to talk about in a bit, and they came and and told the Jews, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews, where is he? And there was a mix of responses from joyous worship to Frustration, to put it lightly. And we're going to be invited into the same tension and the same uh, response of 
of Jesus that we're going to see in the story today. But as I, as I talked about last week, if we lean into the unexpectedness of who this king is and who our God is and that he is for us and that he actually has a way of life that is better than we could ever imagine, we're going to see that Jesus has power to transform our lives better than we could ever imagine. So let's pray and then we're going to get into the text. Jesus, we praise you and thank you because you are our king and you are near to us. And God, I just uh, humbly offer this time and ask that you would lead us through your word, that you would uh, encourage us in areas we need to be encouraged, convict us in areas we need to be convicted, and draw us closer to knowing you and knowing what is truly life. In your name, Jesus, amen. So before we dive into the actual text, and it's the text that KJ read, this, the story of the Magi, I want to give, uh, talk a little bit about the characters in the story and kind of set the, the scene, so to speak. Uh, first and foremost, Jesus. Jesus in the story, it's roughly one to two years after he was born, and his role in the story is that he just simply exists. He, he's one to two years old, still being raised by his parents. He hasn't started his ministry, but his mere presence is the salvation and hope of God. And uh, so that's Jesus in the story. And now the, the time frame of this. So um, especially for the Jewish readers, it might have sounded weird that these Eastern pagans, these magi, would be coming to ask about a king of the Jews. Why would they care about this a king being in a land that isn't theirs to a people that isn't theirs? But what's interesting when you look at ancient history and read accounts of ancient historians is there was actually a around the whole Orient, around that whole ancient world, a, an expectation that something big was happening. And even so specifically from the Jews around the time Jesus was born. And there's two uh, Roman histor- historians that I'd like to read real quick. One of them's name was Suetonius. Around that time wrote, uh, there, had, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Then there was another one named Tacitus who said, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. So this story we're gonna be reading today, like the, there was an expectation. There are, the idea of this savior coming, even from the Jewish people, was, was floating around when Jesus came. He came into a world that was waiting, that was seeking, and that was wondering, God, when are you, are you gonna show up and lead us into this, this golden age that they believed they were entering into? That's the world that Jesus came into. And so uh, that's, that would mean it would make sense for these magi to be seeking, seeking for this savior and looking for it. And these magi, they were non-Jewish people seeking a savior. And in this story, they actually represent like the nations. So anyone that isn't Jewish, but they were, they were not magicians in the wand sense, even though our word magician comes from the, the ancient word magi. They were, they were more like astrologers and more like religious astrologers because they would look into the heavens, look into the stars for divine interpretation that they could then share with people. So they would seek the stars and interpret that for the people of their culture of their day. And they were very much like priests and they were held with 
great revere, even throughout the ancient world, to where um, that's why they were easily able to approach Herod, a king, because when they came, Herod would have been, oh, the Magi are here. I want to hear what these guys have to say. I want to see why they're here, what they're up to. They, they were people of high status. And they come to meet Herod. Who is Herod? Herod was the current king of the Jews, put in power by the Roman Empire. And the most important thing to know about Herod as we get into the story is he was deeply paranoid about losing his power, losing his authority as king. And so much so that he even killed his own wives and kids when he thought that they were going to get into his throne uh, or undermine his authority. The other characters in the story we need to talk about are the priests and the scribes. And they were essentially the ones that the Jewish culture, the Jewish people looked to like in today a church looks to a pastor for sound biblical teaching and assurance of forgiveness, all of those things. The priests were the ones who would offer sacrifices for forgiveness of the people and be able to assure people of their forgiveness before God, while the scribes were the primary teachers of what it meant to be the people of God and follow after God's law. And they were the ones, or at least were supposed to be, close to God and in the know about God-related things. So the Magi, Herod, the priests and the scribes are the main characters of the story. It's a little bit about them. And with, that, with all that in mind, let's, let's actually go into the text and, and walk through it. So we'll start in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, which is essentially the capital of their, their, their kingdom, the Jewish kingdom, and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And let's pause there because there's something I want to point out that's super important is God revealed his salvation to these magi as they sought. They sought it. The whole world was seeking and waiting for God and, and these magi were looking for the salvation, the next thing that God wanted to share. And God met them where they were at and showed them, orchestrated the stars to point them to Jesus, which I think is beautiful. God isn't bound to our perceptions of how he, how he speaks, but he can speak through anything to the people that are seeking him. And so he speaks to these magi that are seeking him to, here, here's the star, follow it. And they, and they follow it and they go and they get to Jerusalem, knock, essentially knock on Herod's door and say, where's the king of, Jew, king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And how do you think Herod would have responded to that? Not good. It says uh, in verse three, it says that uh, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And that word for disturbed, the core of it is more like terrified. So he was deeply troubled, deeply terrified at the thought that maybe, that, that, that there's, there, this, there could be this other king of the Jews that could uh, take away his authority, take away his influence, take away his power. And he was scared, and, and it, to me it makes sense why all of Jerusalem was scared, because if, if Herod, this murderous, volatile leader, is a little on edge, what does that mean for the people? That could, that could be pretty bad for the people. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, and his response then is to seek the scribes and priests, and so in verse four we see him, he, we see him do that. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And we're going to dive into what the Magi do in response to that next, but, but let's, let's pause and see how, how did Herod and the religious leaders respond to this news? Because Herod going to the, the priests and the scribes and saying, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Herod has this idea, oh, this could mean that the Messiah is here. And then the priests and scribes come and they say, oh yeah, this is where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And you'd think that the savior of the Jews coming to his people, that they would respond with curiosity and joy and wonder. But Herod, first and foremost, as we said, was terrified. His, it's almost as if he's saying, if Jesus is Lord, then that means I might not be Lord. I might not be king. And even though he tells the Magi that, that he wants to worship Jesus, next week, Jesse's going to walk us through the second half of, of chapter two, and we're going to see that Herod's actual intent is he wants to, to murder. He wants to murder Jesus. He wants to get rid of him because at the end of the day, his response was to reject Jesus as king because he's the king. He's the king of his kingdom. And, and Herod, as we, as we think, because he was, he was a wicked man. He was, he was a, ter- a terrible, did a lot of terrible things. But what I think Herod symbolizes in this story to the extreme, granted, I'm not calling us murderers, but uh, he symbolizes that core human trait that I started this all with, that when something comes to threaten our sense of control, authority, and power, it can be frustrating and, and hard and we wanna reject it because our desire can be to reject authority and just do things our own way, how we want it, how we know it, how we have decided it. And because it's more comfortable that way. And that's, at the, to the extreme level, what Herod is symbolizing, symbolizing for us here. And the, and the chiefs, priests, and scribes uh, reject Jesus, but in a different, more nuanced way, because they, they are the people in the scriptures. They are the people serving God and seeking God, and they want to lead the people and all that stuff. But when their savior could be here, their response is nothing. Like they, they, they do show the, the, the prophecy, they, they tell Herod this is where the Messiah could be, but when you, when you read the rest of the story, it's, we're gonna see that the Magi go and seek this king, whereas the, the priests and the scribes, there's no account of them actually going and pursuing this king, which to me, Matthew's saying they, they didn't. They didn't do anything about it. And I think a good word to, to sum up how the, the, the Pharisees and scribes felt about it was just indifferent. They, they didn't care. It wasn't enough to, it, it didn't affect their, their bottom line, so to speak. And as we're gonna go throughout the rest of Matthew, we're gonna see um, kind of the, the priests and scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those are names they're gonna go by, are, they have a, a certain heart posture towards God that I think Matthew is hinting out here that, uh, that that's convicting, at least for me it is. And it's that, they, that their relationship with God 
as, as we'll see throughout the rest of Matthew, is built more so on what they get out of God in this life than a true relationship with God as their God and their king and their savior. And I think it's because they're preoccupied with their status, with what they are building for their own namesake and their lifestyle that they've been able to develop mostly at the expense of the poor, which Jesus is gonna have some strong words for. And this is, this is the more convicting response for me because even, even me as, as a pastor, I can fall into the same thing when my relationship with God becomes about me being up on stage preaching or me, being a, uh, me getting what I can out of God or me receiving praise or all these things. It, it can be easy for me to make my relationship with God or my life about that instead of actually knowing this, this savior and this king. And that's, that's, that's challenging. And because the priests and scribes are a reminder that our status, that our, even our knowledge of the Bible, knowing or saying the right things, even being associated with the church doesn't necessarily make us, that's not what makes us the people of God. And that would have been a loving punch to the gut from the Jew, to, the, to his Jewish audience because up until Jesus, what it meant to be the people of God was that you were, you were Jewish and that you followed Torah. And Matthew is introducing a whole new paradigm in Jesus because with the Magi, he's saying that God's kingdom is, is for the Jews, but it's also for the whole world. It's for anyone who is seeking God as their savior and their king. And that at the core of what it means to be a, the people of God is people that are seeking God and after him and following him. And that all people can seek and receive and live under God's reign through Jesus. And so, as I'm hinting at, the Magi responded right. How did they respond? Uh, or they responded in the best way. Um, how did they respond? We'll, we'll see in verse nine. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So their response, which started with seeking this God, then they come before this God, was this joyous worship and, and surrender, I think is the implication of it, to this king that is for them, that has been revealed to them. It's joyous surrender and worship. And this word worship, I think the NIV, which is what I read, is, captures it well because it says they bowed down and worshiped him. This, this word worship is really about bowing down, acknowledging that um, it, it's as if you're saying, I am low and you are high to God. But it's not, it's not a, like a self-belittlement or self-deprecation. It's not a I'm terrible and, and, and whatnot necessarily. It's, it's just simply the acknowledgement, God, you are, you are God and I'm not. You are the king and I am not. And so I am bowing before you as someone who is greater than I. And these magi, as, as I alluded to earlier, they actually are people of pretty high status. They're people of high revere. The ancient world looked up to them. And so for them to come before Jesus and lay down their treasure, lay down their gifts, and 
symbolically their, their lives, their kingship before this, this king is for them to acknowledge that Jesus is greater than anything they could ever imagine. They're acknowledging you're actually our king and worth, worth our status, worth our worship, worth our gifts. The purpose of this opening story in Matthew 2 is to show us, first and foremost, that Jesus is king, and not only king of the Jews, but king of the whole world, and he's worthy of our worship, and he is inviting those, all, all people, to seek him and know him and worship him as Lord of all. And what Matthew is alluding to is that invitation is going to call for a response from each of us. Because any declaration that there is something greater than us calls for a response of our hearts. Jesus' presence is always going to call for a response from us. Because Jesus' presence is one of kingship, one of lordship. It has implications in how we, how we live our lives, what we make our lives about, what, what we do, and who we are. And that's something that we're going to have to wrestle with as we pursue to be God's people. And if we, because if we take Matthew at his word, he's proclaiming, as we talked about last week, that salvation is here, God is here, his love is here, and it is with us, and his, and his love is this king that has been given to us, this Lord that has been given to us. Our king is here. And Matthew's inviting us to respond to that same claim. And just to caveat, all of this is before we even get into the Sermon on the Mount and the what, we, what you could call the moral teachings of Jesus. Because from the get-go, what Matthew wants us to wrestle with, internalize, believe, is that Jesus, first and foremost, is our salvation. He's here, he's God, and that he's our king, and that it's about having that sort of relationship with him. That's at the core of what it means to know God and follow God, as it begins with our relationship acknowledging who Jesus is, and that he's our king, our, our Lord, who is our loving king and Lord who is with us and for us. So my question to you today is, who do you see yourself as in this story? That's the question. There's Herod, who is the perspective of, I don't have any God. I am the master of my own domain and I'm gonna reject that. There's the religious leaders who were indifferent, who uh, got what they could get out of God and only uh, did the God thing as it was comfortable and uh, supported their own agenda. And there's the Magi, who humbly seek and worship Jesus, elevating him as the Lord of all your life. Because we're gonna see throughout the rest of Matthew that it's in worshiping Jesus and following Jesus and elevating him as king that we experience his kingdom, his salvation, his lordship, all of those things. We experience it as we submit to it. And for those of you who may feel today like you may be, uh, be like the priests or be like Herod, you're not stuck that way because once again, as we go through Matthew, we're gonna see that the very people who are rejecting and denying Jesus that ends up leading to his crucifixion and death, that that, God supernaturally takes that and uses it as the actual plan for salvation 
for the whole world and for the very people that are crucifying him and rejecting him. And, and I say that to say that, that as Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's God's heart posture towards us when we are cut, stuck in our own ways, uh, when, we're acting like, when, we're, when we're acting like Herod and, and the priests in terms of how we see Jesus. There's hope for us. And practically what it looks like to uh, put Jesus as the king over our life is to uh, acknowledge and own that the king sets the kingdom. The king is the one who orchestrates the kingdom. And so what it looks like for you to, to elevate Jesus as your king over all your life is to uh, submit to what Jesus says about money, what Jesus says about resolving conflict, forgiveness, loving our enemies, and wrestling with those things and letting that be the direction of how you handle situations that you find yourself in. What does, seeking what does Jesus say about work, about being a parent, or about overall just loving one another well and wrestling with that. Jesus, Jesus himself is gonna say, whoever finds their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And it could, you can read that one of two ways, as, as a threat or as an invitation that true life is found in submitting to this king and finding our life in this king, Jesus. And I don't know what that looks like in your, in your life right now, what Jesus is doing and working on in your heart as to what you prioritize and what you value. But what I do know and what Jesus' invitation to us is when we acknowledge him as king, when we submit all of our lives to his teaching, to his lordship, to his love, what he promises is that that's actually a life abundant more than we could ever, ever imagine. Even if it's something that we don't naturally feel or would naturally want to do. And I want to challenge you to think, like, who, are, who are you in this story? Where are you at? And, and are there areas in my life that Jesus isn't the king of? And when we recognize Jesus as our king as a church, when we elevate Jesus as our, as our king as a church, we're gonna see that as we continue to study and learn that Jesus has actually called us to be his kingdom to the rest of the world, to show the world that he is king, that his salvation is here, and that God's kingdom is better than anything could ever imagine. That there is truth, there is life in this world that is worth living and that is good. And our tools for that are grace, <laughs> patience, forgiveness, and the gospel. As we enter into our response time, just want to encourage you to think, um, as God, as God is your God and the, the, king, the God of the universe, are there areas of your life where you can invite the king that is near to you and that is for you into? So let's, let's pray and then we'll respond. Jesus, we praise you for your lordship. We praise you that the kingdom is good that your kingdom leads to healing, that your kingdom leads to salvation and life for all. And I pray, God, that as we have heard your word and, are, and it's in our hearts that you would lead us in deeper ways of knowing you, of seeing your lordship and your grace over our life, and may that lead to fruit of others experiencing it as well. May you lead us in this time, God. In your name, Jesus, amen.